Amazon VP resigns, calls company chicken shit for firing protesting workers. Shout out to Jonathan Hamilton for this story. Tim Bray says the company has become toxic and the firings are designed to create a climate of fear. Tim Bray, a well-known senior engineer and vice president at Amazon, has quit in dismay because Amazon has been firing whistleblowers who are making noise about warehouse employees frightened of COVID-19. In an open letter on his website, Bray, who has worked at the company for nearly six years, called the company chicken shit for firing and disparaging employees who have organized protests. He also said the firings are designed to create a climate of fear. Amazon's strategy throughout the coronavirus crisis has been to fire dissenters and disparage them both in the press and behind closed doors. There have been dozens of confirmed coronavirus cases at warehouses around the country, and workers have repeatedly said the company isn't doing enough to protect them. Last week, Amazon ended a program that allowed workers to take unlimited unpaid time off if they fear getting sick from the coronavirus. Last Friday, Amazon workers together with Target, FedEx, Instacart, and Whole Foods workers went on strike to protest their working conditions. In statements to Motherboard, Amazon has said its own protesting workers are spreading misinformation and making false claims about Amazon, and that it objects to the irresponsible actions of labor groups. Last month, Amazon fired Chris Smalls, an Amazon worker in New York City. In a meeting, Amazon executives said that they still believe Smalls is not smart or articulate, when in fact he is both, and that publicly they would focus on laying out the case for why the organizer's conduct was immoral, unacceptable, and arguably illegal, according to leaked notes from that meeting obtained by Vice News. Yeah, they totally want to get Chris Smalls to shut the fuck up. And to his credit, he has been doing anything but that. In his resignation letter, Bray said that firing whistleblowers isn't just a side effect of macroeconomic forces, nor is it intrinsic to the function of free markets. It's evidence of a vein of toxicity running through the company culture. I choose neither to serve nor drink that poison. Bray is the highest level Amazon employee to speak out about the company's workplace culture and treatment of its workers. He has been well known in the software engineering world for decades. Last year, he was the highest-ranking employee to sign an open letter promoting a shareholder's resolution calling for climate action at the company, which continues to work with fossil fuel companies. A total of 8,702 employees signed that letter. Bray has previously been arrested for protesting the Trans Mountain Pipeline in Canada. After Amazon fired two employees who helped organize a climate walkout around the time of that letter, Bray said he snapped. VPs shouldn't go publicly rogue, so I escalated through the proper channels and by the book, he wrote. He said that he decided to quit in solidarity with those who have been fired. Remaining an Amazon VP would have meant, in effect, signing off on the actions I despised, so I resigned. The victims weren't abstract entities, but real people. Here are some of their names. Courtney Bowden, Gerald Bryson, Marin Costa, Emily Cunningham, Bashir Mohammed and Chris Smalls, he added. Amazon declined to comment on Bray's letter. So I think this is fucking awesome. And why do I think so? If we really get down to brass tacks, COVID is not the crisis. The real crisis is capitalism. If we had a better system globally for economics, this 
COVID crisis wouldn't have been such a crisis. While it would be great if we had a vaccine for the virus, what we really need is a vaccine for capitalism. And unionism is that vaccine. I've been advocating on this show for a general strike and mass protests. So when I saw this article on social movement unionism, I was intrigued. Even though this article was posted on March 13th, 2016, it's still very timely. What is social movement unionism? The rarest and most politically charged form of unionism, social movement unionism, is also the most difficult form of working class rebellion to define or realize. When the borderlines between working class struggles and movement centered on race, gender, sexuality, age, and empire merge into a movement of movements, then political innovations and revolutionary changes are afoot. Tim Bray's involvement in the climate action movement is what made me think of social movement unionism. Revolutions defy easy description, and we have yet to articulate a working theory. But if we look carefully at social movement unionism, we might begin to see the political attitudes and alliances that can help us envision what transformative changes look like in our time. The evolution of union activity from conventional unionism to professional unionism to public interest unionism takes us to the revolutionary threshold of social movement unionism. As we approach that threshold, members, leaders, and staff consciously belong to a larger national and international effort dedicated to the creation of freedom and democracy in the union, workplace, and in society. The sense of community extends to the furthest horizons as unions claim to represent the interest of all the people. Social movement unionists often adopt the language and agenda of citizenship movements by working to exercise and extend basic human and civil rights into the workplace. We lay claims to democratic political traditions. Social movement unionists aim beyond the workplace because they believe that workplace democracy will likely not be achieved outside of a broad popular movement that can alter the structures of law and political power. We noticed that when we were looking at the roots of the May Day protests. With the Haymarket Massacre in Chicago, we were seeing this dynamic back in the 1860s. Even though everyone was rallying around the idea of an eight-hour workday, there were bigger social aspects of this movement. And the idea of a movement of movements really describes what was happening back in the 1860s. Many disparate groups came together in order to achieve the one shining goal. For this reason, social movement unionists act in concert with other social movements and organizing and community building are given primacy. They value coalition work and for inspiration on vision and tactics, they look to the civil rights and other racial liberation movements, community organizing, feminism, and gay liberation. Unions closely associated with social movements, such as the early United Farm Workers and the rank and file rebellions of the pre-1940s labor movement also provide good examples. Social movement unionism embraces and expresses the full spectrum of alternative political identities and consciousness aiming toward the realization of democracy and has emerged most frequently as local community struggles, often those of poor and immigrant workers. Perhaps most important, social movement unionism can only be created by rank and file activism, be that inside or outside of formal union structures. Workers who live at the intersection of multiple freedom movements are well-suited to lead the way. 
Both labor and civil rights and or peace and or immigration and or women's rights and or environmentalism and or gay liberation and so on and on. Our challenge, Martin Luther King said, is to organize the power we already have in our midst. Social movement unionism is not distant utopia. It is both means and ends, path and destination. From King's perspective, all the deep cultural resources and political ideals we need for social transformation already exist. Take a good look. There is an American revolutionary tradition. Now we need the political skill and organizing savvy to make it real again. Consider the following. We the people are ready. The Great American Boycott. On May Day, 2006, approximately 1 million people in 50 U.S. cities avoided work, school, and shopping to march in one of the largest days of protest in American history. Inspired by the farm worker movements of the 20th century, Mexican Americans and other Latinos played crucial leadership roles and filled the streets. The AFL-CIO and Change to Win endorsed the event in part because tens of thousands of new union members were immigrants. The Great American Boycott focused on immigration reform at a time when many unions were changing their attitudes and policies toward immigrants. Solidarity was recast in broader, multiracial, and multinational terms than U.S. labor had previously been willing to do. That is a serious breakthrough. The movement continues and organizations such as the FAIR Coalition continues to make connections between economic justice, immigration, racism, and the record deportations under the Obama administration. Wisconsin and Occupy In 2011, the people of Wisconsin, led by a union of teaching assistants long steeped in the social movement style, kicked off the first massive anti-austerity demonstration since Seattle. Later that year, the Occupy movement sparked a tsunami of international resistance against austerity and the corporate power. The 99% resonated with millions of people and gave new life to class consciousness and class solidarity, reinvesting class with its broadest possible meaning. In a burst of revolutionary creativity, the working class and we the people merged into the 99%. Economic democracy became a mass aspiration. In contesting public space, the occupations became a living embodiment of the 99% in hundreds of cities and towns, much as the Flint sit-down strikes had triggered similar occupations and similar demands for economic democracy during the Great Depression. At countless meetings, people experienced direct local democracy, often for the first time. I wonder if they poisoned the water in Flint in retaliation. Occupy redirected feelings of resentment against public employees or just the person working down the hall or living next door by focusing on the 1%. Occupy made the corporate power visible again. At first, some in the union movement picked up on fresh faces and new messages that Occupy created. But as Occupy waned, labor officials returned to the muddled discourse about the middle class and business as usual machine politics. Occupy faded, but never disappeared as many groups continue activism around the country. Revolutionary outlooks and energies may have submerged, but still ran deep among the union rank and file and the 99%. As you've probably noticed, my tinfoil hat is never far away from my head. Revealed how the FBI coordinated the crackdown on Occupy by Naomi Wolf. 
This article was written in December 2012. New documents prove what was once dismissed as paranoid fantasy, totally integrated corporate state repression of dissent. It was more sophisticated than we had imagined. New documents show that the violent crackdown on Occupy last fall, so mystifying at the time, was not just coordinated at the level of the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, and local police, the crackdown, which involved, as you may recall, violent arrests, group disruption, canister missiles to the skulls of protesters, people held in handcuffs so tight they were injured, people held in bondage till they were forced to wet or soil themselves, was coordinated with the big banks themselves. The Partnership for Civil Justice Fund, in a groundbreaking scoop that should once more shame major U.S. media outlets, why are nonprofits now some of the only entities in America left breaking major civil liberties news? Filed this request. Kudos to the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. The document, reproduced here in an easily searchable format, shows a terrifying network of coordinated DHS, FBI, police, regional fusion center, and private sector activity so completely merged into one another that the monstrous whole is, in fact, one entity in some cases bearing a single name, the Domestic Security Alliance Council, DSAC. And it reveals this merged entity to have one centrally planned, locally executed mission. The documents, in short, show the cops and DHS working for and with banks to target, arrest, and politically disable peaceful American citizens. The documents, released after long delay in the week between Christmas and New Year, show a nationwide meta-plot unfolding in city after city in an Orwellian world. Six American universities are sites where campus police funneled information about students involved with Occupy Wall Street to the FBI with the administration's knowledge. This is page 51 of the report if you want to read it. Banks sat down with FBI officials to pool information about Occupy Wall Street protesters harvested by private security. Plans to crush Occupy events planned for a month down the road were made by the FBI and offered to the representatives of the same organizations that the protests would target and even threats of the assassination of Occupy Wall Street leaders by sniper fire. By whom? Where? now remained redacted and undisclosed to those American citizens in danger, contrary to standard FBI practice to inform the person concerned when there is a threat against a political leader. It sounds as though the FBI redacted their own names with regard to these sniper fire threats. As Mara Verhaden Hilliard, executive director of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund, put it, the documents showed that from the start, the FBI though it acknowledges Occupy movements as being, in fact, a peaceful organization, nonetheless designated Occupy Wall Street repeatedly as a terrorist threat. FBI documents just obtained by the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund reveal that from its inception, the FBI treated the Occupy movement as a potential criminal and terrorist threat. The PCJF has obtained heavily redacted documents showing that FBI offices and agents around the country were in high gear conducting surveillance against the movement even as early as August 2011, a month prior to the establishment of the Occupy Wall Street encampment in Zuccotti Park and other Occupy actions around the country. 
Verhaden Hilliard points out the close partnering of banks, the New York Stock Exchange, and at least one local Federal Reserve with the FBI and DHS and calls it police statism. This production of documents, which we believe is just the tip of the iceberg, is a window into the nationwide scope of the FBI's surveillance, monitoring, and reporting on peaceful protesters organizing with the Occupy movement. These documents also show these federal agencies functioning as a de facto intelligence arm of Wall Street and corporate America. You have owners. They own you. So if this kind of information gets your panties in a twist, then you may want to think about what we should be doing together to overcome this. Hmm, puny. Say, let's pretend this brain is a puny little ant. Did that hurt? <laughs> nope. Well, how about this one? Are you kidding? <laughs> how about this? You let one ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. Those puny little ants outnumber us a hundred to one. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping those ants in line. Tim Bray is at grasshopper level, and he stood up for us. But the only way to get the ants riled up is to get the news to them. The true revolution, I think, is going to happen on the internet. If the internet ants really get serious about this, I think we can share this kind of news even against the algorithms. If you're not the kind of person who's ready with your pitchfork to wade into the street, at least be ready to share this kind of news on your social media platforms. We're not going to get laws into effect to take down Google until we actually get the word out. It's a vicious circle and we have to break it somehow just by massive sharing. So let's roll up our sleeves and get going. Please share these messages wherever you can.